We are in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. Um, If you were given a bulletin when you came in, the passage is right on the left-hand side on the inside, and there's a simple outline that we're going to be following on the right-hand side. And so let's jump in. So a quick quote before we start. Pastor and theologian John Piper says that glorifying God means feeling and thinking and acting in ways that reflect his greatness that make much of God, and that give evidence of the supreme greatness of all of his attributes. In other words, and how we say it here at Redeemer Fellowship is, we glorify God when we show the world what God is like. I'm sure you've heard me say that before. We glorify God when we show the world what God is like. This morning, we're going to be confronted with two miraculous events. And the thing about these miraculous events as we see them show up throughout the book of Acts is that they often leave us, at least me, a little confused. Like, what's going on here? And I think we begin asking the wrong questions. Why don't we see these sorts of things happening regularly in the church today? Where are all of the miracles How can I conjure up these sorts of gifts, whether it be the gift of prophecy, tongues, or as we'll see today, healing? As you might know, the continuation of these things called the sign gifts is what we call an open-handed issue here at Redeemer Fellowship, meaning that there are some who believe in them and others who do not believe that they continue to today. My goal this morning is not to convince us either way on this issue, but rather to help us understand the purpose behind the miraculous. In the same way a coming attraction to a movie gives us a taste of what we'll experience when we watch the entire film, so too is it with these signs and wonders which serve as an arrow pointing to the wonder that is the kingdom of God and the person and work of Jesus. So let's jump in. Let's take a look. We're going to be in this first section, all that he continues to do, verses 32 through 35, and it reads as follows. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Leda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. I love this. Such a cool scene. Let's take a look here, right? Couple of observations, right? Peter is back on the scene. If you remember, we've had a kind of a brief pause on the story of Peter, because Saul, if you remember, was ravaging the church. He was ravaging the church, and, and, and because of that ravaging... The saints were pushed beyond the borders of Jerusalem. Philip actually took the gospel to the ends of the earth when he proclaimed the good news of Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, as Saul is on his way to Damascus to gather more Christians and and in his mind hopefully kill them, he's knocked off his horse by a bright light and he's converted. And now he knows Jesus. And there's peace in the land. And so Peter's back, 
And because there's peace, he seems to be traveling around here and there, and he's most likely proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. And he happens upon a man who has been paralyzed for eight years. And notice what he says. Notice what he says. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. You catch that? Does anyone see Jesus in this scene? Like, is he here as you read through this chapter? Do you see Jesus? Because he, he's not there, but yet Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. If you remember back in the first chapter of Acts, see, Luke says that in his first volume, he wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach, implying that he is continuing to do and teach certain things. And here he shows up through the person of Peter, to heal this man who was bedridden for eight years. And, and catch the language. What does he say? He says, Jesus Christ heals you, rise. And what does the guy do? Immediately he rises. That's intentional language, Redeemer. That's, that's not an accident. Luke knows what he's doing. We've talked about this in the past. Luke knows what he's doing. In the first two verses of the book of Acts, like I said, Luke writes that in his first book, he talked about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And now Peter's continuing the work. And so too we, as followers of Jesus, need to continue the work. But the beauty about this text is, is who's it pointing to? Is it, is it pointing to Peter? No, it's pointing to Christ. It's pointing to Christ. That is a massively important thing that we need to wrap our minds around. See, Peter's not making it about himself, and nor are the rest of the apostles and, and the disciples of Christ as they're traveling to and fro throughout the book of Acts. They're not making it about themselves. There was one a few chapters back. If you remember Simon the magician, he made it about himself. And, and, that, and, and he wasn't really spoken to highly of. This is such an incredible thing. And then what happens all the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. They didn't turn to miracles. They didn't turn to wanting to do all sorts of cool magic tricks because I think often when we read stuff like this, we're like, man, I'd love, I'd love a cool magic trick. But no, they turned to the Lord. What do we desire more? Do we desire the giver of the gift or the gift? And what we're being challenged here is that we should desire the giver of the gift, namely Jesus Christ. And so the text continues here as we look in verses 36 through 43, full of good works and acts of charity. Let's take a look at verses 36 through 39 first. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room, since Leda was near Joppa. The disciples, hearing that Peter was there, he sent two men, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. So, so there's this woman who dies. Her name is Tabitha. Who is she? Well, a couple of observations. She's a woman who's full of good works and acts of charity. She's full of good works and acts of charity. This is a good woman. 
This is a righteous woman. This is a woman who seems to be following in the steps of Jesus. What I think is also interesting about this text is that there are saints in both of these areas, meaning that the gospel is taking root outside of the boundaries of Jerusalem, which already we're seeing the Great Commission taking place. It's just unfolding and getting further and further toward the ends of the earth, so much so that we're sitting here in Tom's River and we know Jesus. And that's because of these first few chapters of the book of Acts that we know Jesus because the gospel continued to move outward. So, so what else do we see? It seems that her good works and her acts of charity were focused specifically on widows as they were the ones weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. See, to be a widow in the ancient world was not an easy thing. You didn't have a man taking care of you. That was like really necessary in those days, which is why James says in chapter 1, verse 27 of, of his little epistle, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their, in, in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I actually think we can expand the definition of widow. Right? It's the have-nots of the world. The people who have been cast aside by society are the very people we, as the church, are meant to go and step into their lives and care for them. That's one of the reasons why we're taking such an effort with the Open Door Pregnancy Center, because we believe it is vitally important to care for not only unborn babies, but these women who are choosing to have babies, and, and women who have possibly had abortions, but, but are recognizing that maybe that was not the right choice. And we want to care for these women. We want to honor them. See, we're not just about saving babies. We're about caring for people, because we believe in the image of God. That's a vitally important thing. And we care about it deeply here at Redeemer Fellowship. Beverly Gaventa, one commentator, she says it like this. The exhibition of the clothing that Tabitha provided reveals something specific in her activity, but it also solidifies the bond between her and the widow. See, their loss was severe. See, the fact that Tabitha's gone means that these women feel as though they're in trouble. They don't, what, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to me, they're thinking. And so what happens is that, that they send word because they hear Peter is just a few towns away, and they're like, maybe Peter can help. Maybe Peter can come and, and do something about what we're experiencing here. Now, now who knows? Maybe they, maybe they thought Peter was going to come and raise her from the dead. Or maybe they were thinking back to, well, well I remember that, that Peter chose those seven to, to care for the widows. Maybe he'll do something like that here. Who knows? I don't know. But they call to get help from Peter. And so what happens? Peter comes and it says in verses 40 and following, but Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with Simon the Tanner. couple things. What does Peter do? He kneels down and he prays. And then he utters 
two words, Tabitha, arise. It's actually interesting. If you look back at the Gospel of Mark, there's a similar situation where, where Jesus says, Talitha kume, which is one word difference from Tabitha. Who knows? Maybe there's an echo there. I'm not really sure. And then he gives her his hand, and he raises her up, and then he presents her alive. This story is eerily similar to Jesus raising up Jairus' daughter in Luke 8. And notice that in Acts 1-3, it was Jesus who, and I quote, presented himself alive. The, the language is identical. Because Luke wants to do something here. Luke wants to keep in front of us, keep at the forefront of our minds, the resurrected king. That's the point here. These signs and wonders that, that Peter is performing on behalf of the name of Christ through the power of Christ and of his Holy Spirit serves one single purpose so that people might look to the risen king. That's the point. In fact, the language that's peppered throughout this passage are words like rise or arose or risen, and they're all the same words used to describe the resurrection of Jesus. Is that a coincidence? No. Because Luke wants us to see Jesus. Luke wants us to see Jesus. That's what this is all about. Both of these miracles, they are signs pointing to the resurrection of King Jesus. And as you will notice when you meet with your community groups, and I just brought this up, you'll, you'll be asked to count the amount of times the words rise or arose show up in this passage. Reason being is that our eyes need to be fixed upon our King. That's the whole point of this book that's what we're getting at. Paul's gospel, as he proclaims it throughout the epistles, is all about the risen king. Why? Because as we saw last week, he was face to face with the risen king. That is the singular most important event in the life of Paul. And everything that he writes about in the New Testament flows from that event. I mean, think of one of the most significant events in your life. I think of the birth of my children. I think of the, my wedding day. And every single thing I do deals with the fact that I'm married and I have three kids. Everything. Everything. I go to work because I have a wife and three kids. I work hard because I have a wife and three kids. I, I, I take care of things at my house because I have a wife and three kids. I put my son's bed together yesterday that I have to fix because it didn't work out because I have three kids. And I'm going to go figure that out this week. I don't want to build a bed. But I have a wife and three kids. I have to. And so that event in my life has informed every other event in my life. And there's another event that informs it even more. The day when I met Jesus. It informs every single thing I do. At least I hope, and I know there are times when it doesn't, because as I've said in the past, right, we're saints, but we still speak in the accent of a sinner. But that's the point, that we see Jesus. And as we saw uh, last week, when Paul saw Jesus, what happened? Everything changed. And when these people 
saw Jesus, everything changed. Everything changed. And so, as I said before, just as coming attractions are meant to prepare us for the movie in its entirety, signs and wonders are always meant to point us to something beyond themselves, namely the person and work of Jesus. And while I believe, to show my hand a little bit, that the sign gifts still exist in the church today, there is a sign that is far greater than any miracle or tongue, or prophecy you will ever experience, namely the church. Actually, Jesus says in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, we are the sign and wonder that points to Christ. We are the body of Christ. Like that's not just a cheap metaphor. That's meant to instruct us on something, that we are actually the extension of Jesus into this world. We are ambassadors, as I quoted last week, making, that Jesus is making his appeal through us. Because what are we? We are the temple of God. And where does the presence of God reside? In the temple. We are filled with the Holy Spirit so that where we go, God goes. That's a beautiful thing. It's a scary and daunting thing sometimes, too, because, yeah, we are being watched. And if you read the news, it does seem that, that, that evangelical Christians seem to be, you know, in the crosshairs right now. And, and that's okay. That's okay. We can learn from that, and we can be different than the negative examples that we've seen throughout church history. That's the beauty about studying church history. You can learn from, from our, our mothers and fathers of the past and see, okay, where'd they get it right? Where'd they get it wrong? And how can we be better? And they've gotten it wrong. Like, we can't sit here and pretend that the church has just been all lollipops and rainbows, right? But the beauty is that we, I mean, we're, we're the plan, guys. We're plan A. God has enlisted us to be the means by which he proclaims life into this world. I'm going to actually take a sip this time. Which leads us to another text. 1 Corinthians 13, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn there with me. I'm sure you've heard this passage read at weddings, and maybe some of you have had this passage read at your wedding. Many of us might even have it memorized, but I think it's really important before we actually even look at the passage itself is to notice where this chapter falls. It falls in between chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians and chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. Two passages which speak about spiritual gifts. And as my uh, Bible professor said in seminary, context is king. It matters where things are placed. Let's take a read here. I'm just going to read through the whole chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love. I mean, imagine speaking in the tongue of an angel. I don't even know what language that is. That must be a wild language. But imagine if you spoke in that. If you spoke angel, like maybe some of you like are like Lord of the Rings nerds and you know how to speak like Elvish or something like that. But this is the tongues of angels. But have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give up all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. It's kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly lit, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I know Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And here's where it's great, right? So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest, it means the best, is love. See, if signs and wonders are meant to point people to the risen and exalted King Jesus, then we... As the people of God, the body of Christ, we need to pursue the greatest sign and wonder of all to love as we have been loved and commanded to love. See, see a couple things that show up, right? Love doesn't, doesn't keep track of wrong. See, love, it's patient. It's patient. That means, that means. That means as we look at the world around us, as we look at at maybe sinners in the world around us, we're patient. We're patient. We're not jumping to judgment. We're not jumping to finger pointing. We're listening. We're empathizing with the broken. And even as I mentioned last week, regardless of where we stand politically, We look across the aisle and we see image bearers. And and, and again, we don't make our decisions about how we love based on our political party, but about who our king is. See, that's where the world seems to be getting it wrong. That's where a lot of the church seems to be getting it wrong lately. Is that we're allowing everything but what this points to, who this points to, to, to influence our decision-making, our lives, and our, our way of, of, of relating to one another in this world. And we need, to, we need to repent of that. We need to fight every single natural instinct of ours so that we might walk with Jesus according to his ways and not the ways that are laid out on whether it's Fox or CNN or whatever news channel you might subscribe to. In fact, we need to push ourselves away from that stuff so much because because a steady diet of that is what is discipling us. That's what's discipling us because every single one of us are disciples. It's just a matter of whom are, or who, I always get confused. Who are we taking our marching orders from? It's massively important, Redeemer. We need to be a people who shows the world what God is like. 
That's what it means to glorify him. And we are the sign and wonder. See, we are the coming attraction that draws others to want to experience the movie in its entirety. We are the rehearsal dinner before the cosmic wedding feast. We're the appetizer that stirs your taste buds before enjoying the meal. What sort of taste buds are we stirring in people? What sort of meal are they anticipating when they look at us? Redeemer Fellowship, my prayer is that we would see ourselves as the sign and wonder that draws the lost in, that through both our works and words, that this world might catch a glimpse of what God is like. That this world might see God. That they would see the risen and exalted King Jesus. That that's the name that would be on the tip of our tongue. That these beautiful things that we're called to meditate on, things that are good, things that are holy, things that are just and honorable, that those would be on the tip of our tongue. That those would be the things that we fill our minds with daily. That's the message we carry into this world. We were never meant to to up upheave political systems and structures. That wasn't what the call was. Remember what the apostles asked Jesus? Yeah, so when are we going to do this? When are we, we going to take out Rome? And, and Jesus is like, yeah, 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 no, that's, that's not the plan, guys. That's not the plan. It's still not the plan. It's still not the plan. We need to take the words of the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Move them beyond our wedding ceremonies and into our daily lives. Signs and wonders point to the risen and exalted king. And we are the primary sign and wonder by which God is making his appeal in this world. Let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for... I'm going to spend a minute on grace, Lord, because... We don't deserve your love. We don't deserve the compassion that you have shown us, the peace that you give us, the love and grace that you lavish upon us. But Lord, you do it anyway. Father, I pray that we would take our marching orders from you and you alone and that we would show the world just what you are like as we love one another and as we love those around us, Father. God, Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he suffered, died, and was buried, and on the third day he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. Thank you that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Thank you for the promise of eternal life, that we will be with you for all eternity, Father, and that all that we see and that we look around at will be made new when you return. Thank you for that promise, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.